Well, maybe half of you will be familiar with this old song by Jimmy Soul. If you want to be happy for the rest of your life, never make a pretty woman your wife. Go from my personal point of view, get an ugly girl to marry you. He goes on, don't let your friends tell you that you have no taste. Go ahead and marry anyway. Her face is ugly, her eyes don't match. Take it from me, she's a better catch. Well, I'm not totally sure about the wisdom of that advice. I happen to follow a different path. It's worked out well so far. I'm not sure what romantic experiences led to to Jimmy Soul writing such an odd song. We can only imagine what kind of beautiful girl broke his heart. I'm not sure you can trust a guy named Jimmy Soul. I'm not sure that's his real name anyway. <laughs> Regardless, this morning I don't want to talk about what kind of person to marry. It's that first line of the chorus that's so memorable and so fitting for our passage this morning. If you want to be happy for the rest of your life, and more than this life, even the life to come. Psalm 1 doesn't tell us to marry a pretty girl or to marry an ugly girl. It tells us something more important than that. We could say Psalm 1 tells us how to be happy no matter who you married. We could say that Psalm 1 tells us how to be happy no matter where you live and what job you have and how much you make, whether you have the kind of family that you hoped for, whether that be the number of kids you hoped for, or whether that be how those kids turn out. Psalm 1 tells us how we can be happy, whether retirement seems further and further over the horizon than it did a decade ago. It tells us the pathway of true happiness, even amidst hardships and difficulties. So let's read it together. We've already sung it together. A great rendition of this psalm. Let's read it as as we find it in our Bibles this morning. Six verses that say this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's what God's word says. I'd like to make five observations about this first psalm. The first is right there in the first word. I think the first word, blessed, tells us about our irrepressible undeniable, and yet seemingly hopeless aim for true happiness. We all have it. Notice the first word in the book of Psalms is blessed. You might not realize that that word blessed means all that I said in this point, point number one. 
blessed might sound to some, maybe especially non-Christians, either boring or unrealistic. You might think blessed sounds like so saintly, so holy, so about not doing certain things that you just walk around with this glowing disc behind your head like you've seen in the paintings. Or maybe you just think it's about going well, things going well for you. And ironically, some of the people you've bumped into who say that they're blessed the most are those that don't seem very financially blessed at all. Well, we'll come back to that in just a bit. The word really means, though, happy. Not blessed like things go well, and not blessed like uh, so saintly that they're weird or otherworldly necessarily. It means happy, and not just happy, but fruitful and fulfilled, confident, at peace with self and at peace with circumstances. All that is wrapped up in this first word of the Psalter, blessed. Now for each of us, and everyone in this world, I think, we know that this is our aim. We're after happiness, but not just happiness, fulfillment, meaning, sense of things, confidence, at peace with self, at peace with our surroundings. That's what every single one of us is, is after. And it's irrepressible because God has put it in us. He's put it in us because he's like that. Now for us, it's broken. It's messed up. Like so many things that are here in this world, since sin came into the world, they've gone from good to still there but broken. They didn't totally disappear. So it's like this. God does things for joy. He seeks his joy in things. Our God is fulfilled. Our God is rightly confident. Our God is fruitful and satisfied. And we were made to model that, mirror that back to him for his glory. But since sin has come into the world, we have a broken vision of that and broken pursuit of it. It's still irrepressible, though. It's still our pursuit, even if it's the wrong pursuit, even if we're looking for love in all the wrong places or looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. Like the Rolling Stones saying, you can't get no satisfaction, right? That's a good song because everyone knows it. Everyone has tried it. There's a whole book of the Bible about that. Solomon writes his book Ecclesiastes and he goes to the end of each of these different kinds of roads of fulfillment. So maybe you've thought before, I might be happy if I had enough money to buy everything I think I'd be happy with. Or I might be happy if certain rules didn't apply to me. Maybe it's a pathway of achievement. I might be happy if I was able to achieve everything I wanted to achieve. Or maybe it's a pathway of fame. I'd be happy if I could just be famous, known for this or that. Most of us lack the means to get to the end of any of those roads. Solomon didn't lack the means, and he went to the end of each of those roads. Achievement, fame, money, women, relationships, education, Beauty, he had it all. 
And he gets to the end of each of those roads, and his conclusion is that it's all grasping after the wind. It's empty. You're not any more fulfilled with more of it or a better version of it. It's irrepressible, Solomon's proof, and we know that too in our own experience. So it's undeniable, and it's seemingly hopeless. It's seemingly hopeless because sin has messed up our thinking, messed up our vision, our pursuit of these things, satisfaction and fulfillment and joy. And so Jeremiah 2 says that that we've done this. We've deserted the living God and his living water. And we've hewn out for ourselves. We've made these broken cisterns that can hold no water. What's a cistern for? It holds water. That's what it does. And every idol is a broken cistern. Everything in this world that's not God, if we try to make it God and try to be our capital F fulfillment, then it's a broken cistern. It just leaks. It gushes. There's nothing there. It's seemingly hopeless. But the book of Psalms begins with one word that's an invitation to a pathway that's different. Psalm 1 is sort of a gateway to the rest of the Psalms. Now, in earlier days, it wasn't called Psalm 1. In in some manuscripts, medieval manuscripts, even before that, it would often be in red and it wouldn't be numbered because it was considered the introduction or the preface the gateway to the Psalms. Imagine you walk through the gates of Psalm 1 to see the splendor of 149 other Psalms. So it tells us something about where this is going and what the Psalms are useful for. It's a pathway of blessedness. That leads to the second point, the happy path. We can try to figure out what it says here in verses 1 and 2 about this happy path, or, or how we find the kind of happiness that we're all after that's undeniable and irrepressible and yet seemingly hopeless. Verses 1 and 2 give us a negative answer first, what this happy path isn't, and then the positive answer, what it is. The happy path first steers clear of bad guides. Bad guides. Steers clear. See in verse 1? The blessed man is one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, and doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, those who scoff God and scoff God's ways. Psalm 1, verse 1, tells us there are certain things to avoid. Psalm 1, verse 1, tells us that Nancy Reagan was right. There are some things for which you should just say no. Right? There are some things, certain Context, certain surroundings, certain people that need and require extra care. Now, you might be thinking, is this telling us to avoid sinners, the world, others? Is that what this is saying? Is this telling us to retreat and hunker down for protection? Because if we're near them, then we'll be influenced by them, we'll be led astray, and therefore... We'll have trouble, so we should just scoot away, go into a, a force field, sort of a Christian world if we can. If we can live without them, that's fine because we'll be safe. Well, no, that's not what it's saying. 
Here's one reason why. In your Christian force field, in your little make-believe Christian bubble world thing that you can sort of conceive but isn't real, you'd still bring sinners in with you. You should still bring sin from your own heart into this. The sin isn't out there necessarily. Our temptation's right here in our own hearts. You don't need to go to them to find trouble. You got it right there within you. And there's another reason why Psalm 1, verse 1, isn't telling us to hunker down for protection and retreat. And it's because in the New Testament, Jesus gave a great commission, we call it, at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at the beginning of Acts. All differently put, but similarly stated, this mission, the church. Jesus' disciples go into the world and they make disciples of other people. They go and they proclaim. They go and they represent Jesus. That reminds us of what the Gospels say earlier about Jesus' own interaction with the world. Remember? The righteous, so-called righteous. They thought Jesus was a friend of sinners and they thought that was trouble. He ate with sinners. He had meals with them. He shared life with them. Not just because he got along with them better than he got along with the religious crew. He proclaimed truth to them. He ate with righteous people, quote-unquote righteous people, these Pharisees, these false teachers. And then he also ate with sinners, capital S sinners, famously bad sinners. And Jesus prayed for us in John 17, not that The Father would take us out of the world to be removed from the influence around us, to be removed from from the sin of this world, that we'd be protected while we're here. He hasn't removed us. He hasn't given us a force field. He hasn't put us in a bubble or called us simply to a Christian community. No, we retreat from the Christian, we retreat from the world to, to have a Christian community as a church, but we scatter throughout the week to be involved in others' lives and to represent Christ to them. A great summary passage is Matthew 5. You probably know it well, the the picture of salt and light. Christians are supposed to be salt and light in this world. And just think, with each of those pictures, how important... um, Well, let me put it this way. Think about how you could fall off on either side of the horse. Okay? So salt is a preserving agent especially in first century times and before. Before there's refrigeration, you use salt on meat to preserve it. And Jesus is saying, you're the salt of the earth. You're to be a preserver. You're to be a flavor to the world, which means you have to touch them. You can't affect the meat from a mile away, Mr. Salt. You have to get on it. You have to be next to it. And yet, Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 13, if the salt loses its flavor, its savor, what is it good for? You see, salt has to be salt. It has to be unique. It has to keep its preserving properties. And yet, it has to touch the meat to have an effect. Same with the light. You're not supposed to hide your light. The very nature of light is that you put it up where it's visible. They're supposed to see it. They're supposed to see it in all its brightness, in all its glory. You have to be seen if you're going to be light in this world. And yet, light can't lose its lightness, right? 
Keep your light going. Keep your light pure. So Psalm 1 isn't telling us to remove ourselves from the world completely. No, what Psalm 1 is after are questions like this. With what do you associate more? The world or the word? The world or the word? When it says, walk not in the counsel of the wicked, don't stand in the way of sinners, don't sit in the seat of scoffers, it's really asking us, to whom do you listen more? The world or the word? Now, I know if this is a a bubble test, two choices, A or B, I know that almost everyone in here knows to to fill in the right bubble. Oh, the word. Oh, we've got to ask it at a deeper level than that. You ask yourself at a deeper level that probe a little bit more than that. Which is the greatest influence in your living, in your thinking, in your priorities, in your, your hopes and dreams and pursuits? The world or the word? Which gets more time? The world or the word? Which has more effect on you? Which one is shaping you more? And which one are you growing in and growing towards? So Psalm 1 may have less to do with something like whether you listen to secular music or not and more to do with something like do you watch Oprah carefully? Or do you think because she's happy and, and yells happily and has nice pumps on that she's right? And because she's a bestseller, she must be right. She gives away cars, must be right. The preacher's going to have to come up with a new illustration besides Oprah now that she's retired, huh? Psalm 1, verse 1, may have less to do with whether you have non-believing friends, because you should. Jesus did. may have less to do with whether you'll befriend that very different person down the street or at work, because you should. It has more to do with whether you go to them for advice about life decisions and moral dilemmas, and where you go for comfort if you know that there's a difference between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of God. Of the world. Do you notice the progression there in verse 1? Maybe you've heard this pointed out before. A progression from walk to stand to sit. You can picture it, can't you? He doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly like he's walking by. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. This is now someone who isn't walking by but is stopping listening and he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers this is now someone who's pulled up a chair this is someone who's getting comfy so you see there's a progression of comfortableness there's a progression of saturation and there's a progression of authority so not to belabor the point but this is important some of us here this morning We'll take a passage like Psalm 1, verse 1 here, and wrongly assume that this 
This gives assurance for our retreating from the world, for our bubble community, our escapist lifestyle, thinking that the problems, the evil is out there. It's not in our own heart. As long as we can keep our kids from them, we'll keep them. Others, however, will, I think, see Psalm 1 warning about certain associations and certain influences and how much time, perhaps, we spend with those who are scoffing the Lord. And we only want to qualify it. We only want to say what it doesn't mean. You only want me this morning to tell Desert Springs Church what it can't mean. It doesn't mean remove yourself from the world. Protect yourself by keeping arm's length from sinners. And I'm with you. I'm qualifying it. But if that's all that it means to you, You've missed something here. You can't let the result of this verse basically mean that there's no part of your life that needs protecting, needs discernment. This takes wisdom. And a lot of other factors should probably come into play. Whether we're talking about a new Christian or whether we're talking about younger Christians, they probably should be more careful than those who are older, those who are more established in the faith. The New Testament talks about weaker Christians versus stronger Christians. That should be a factor. Some are weaker, some are stronger. Some are more prone to stumble than others. Each of us has specific temptations. There are certain things that I know I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't go there. I I should just keep at arm's length and let someone else be the missionary to that field, whatever that might be. But you should know your own heart and your own temptations and know where mission fields can, for you, become pockets of sin and too much temptation for you to handle. That's the first thing here of the happy path, what we avoid. But secondly, see this, verse 2, it stays stays close to the good guide. Look at verse 2. His delight, the blessed man's delight, is in the law of the Lord. Law? What's that mean? Mosaic law, like first five books of the Bible, and all that extra stuff about judicial law, ceremonial law. I don't think he means just that. Though sometimes law means just that in the Bible. I think he means all of Scripture, but I think, remember this concept that the first psalm, It's an introduction to the Psalter, to the whole book of Psalms. And as such, think of it, it's a gate. It's a gate that's inviting us on in. What's it telling us? Delight yourself in this book. Delight yourself. We think of law, bad, you know, these things don't do. Torah means instruction on its simplest form. The instruction of the Psalms, it's inviting us to that. Not just to the Psalms, so that we get to Psalm 150 and stop and say, there, I've obeyed Psalm 1. I delight in what it says here, his word, as it's represented in the Psalms. No, it tells us to keep going beyond the Psalms, but there's something special about the invitation here. Delight yourself in this book. Delight? More on that in just a minute. He meditates on this book, whether we're talking the book of Psalms, or the whole Bible. What's it mean to meditate? Well, first thing you should know is that it's not the same as Eastern meditation. 
With Eastern meditation, the goal is mindlessness. With Christian meditation, the goal is mindfulness. Meditation is chewing on God's word. It's something like the way a cow takes a cud. Chews it, chews it. He swallows it and it goes down to stomach one. You know where this is going. A little bit while later, it comes up and he chews it. He chews it. Sends it back down to stomach two. This happens two more times. Stomach three, stomach four. Eventually then it goes out. But the point is this. We need that kind of chewing and digesting with God's word. We take a portion of it and we look at it from this angle and that angle. We study it. We search it. We think about it. We reflect on it. We relate it to other things. We ask the passage, a verse or a chapter, certain questions. We probe it. We seek to apply it and put ourselves under it. We really, in some ways, seek to preach it to ourselves. I've heard someone say before that meditation is simply you, alone with your Bible, imitating your favorite preacher. You know the way preachers, a good preacher, will... Ask the passage certain questions, right? He's sort of restless. He's like a, an attack dog of words. Going after this and going after that. And then, and then he's an attack dog of hearts in a sense, or a, a surgeon of hearts. He's pulling this over and pulling that up and trying to get to the bottom of this and that. You might not practice that yourself. You might be good at coming and listening to some preacher doing that. But that's what meditation is in part, is... In a sense, doing what a good preacher would do on a Sunday morning. It's mixing prayer. It's really just treating God's word as his real, personal communication with us. It's treating God's word not as an old book with just instruction or good advice, but God's spiritual, real, now communication to us. And then we respond to that back in prayer to him. That's meditation. It's big. We should grow in it. We'll never perfect it, but we should grow in it. And we should do this day and night, it says. Is that even possible? I mean, aren't we right back with sort of the the monastery concept of withdrawing? I mean, we've got to meditate in his word day and night. It's this serious to meditate in his word. We've got to do it day and night. I can't hold down a job. I, I, you know, I, I, I can't date you. I can't have kids. I can't, I can't do that. I, I gotta, no, doesn't mean that. It means that we need sort of a life saturation of the word. I can think of it in three concentric circles, day and night. We need the word in times of intense, planned, routine meditation, whether that's in the morning for you or you think better at night, whatever. We need times of intense, planned, routine study or meditation and prayer. Sometimes alone, sometimes with family, hopefully with both. Another concentric circle would be that we need many other shorter returns, more frequent returns to the Word throughout the day. This this sermon this week, this passage this week, reminds me of an old habit I let go. Uh, I used to... Whatever I was reading uh, in the morning, whether it be a chapter or three chapters or more, I'd take 
one verse from what I read, write it down on a three by five card, put it in my back pocket, and I'd have it with me all day. In a truck, it's there on the dash, right? You pull it out. Go to the bathroom, you pull it out. You know? You have it with you. You, you need a, an encouragement, you know? You're discouraged about something. Pull it out, you think on it, you meditate on it. By the end of the day, I practically would have it memorized even though I wasn't really trying to. That wasn't necessarily the goal to memorize it forever and ever. It was to have that day's food to chew on. You know, have like a, a little morsel. Lord of the Rings, they pull out some magic food, right? Some sort of angel food cake or something like that. And, you know, it's like that. You've got this thing. You just pull it out and you nibble a little bit throughout the day. We need shorter returns to his word at several times throughout the day. And then sort of the biggest concentric circle of the word in the life of the Christian is that we need to relate the word and God's ways to all things in all experiences. We're not there. We never will be there until heaven, but we're growing in trying to connect more things vertically to the reality of a new heaven and a new earth that's to come and great promises that God's given us. We need the word for that. We need the word to never be far from our minds and our hearts and our lips. The more it's in our hearts and minds, the more it'll ooze out from us and we'll bleed Bible. It's our compass. It's our mirror. How many times do you use the mountains as a compass for you as you drive? What if you determined to make sure you use the Bible as a compass each day more than that? The Bible is a mirror. It exposes us. How many minutes or hours do we look into a mirror to make sure this is in place and that's not sticking up and, you know, there isn't this hanging out there? What if we determined to make sure that we looked at the spiritual word, spiritual mirror, more than we looked at our faces in the mirror. It's food, it's water. How do you create a habit for eating? Eat. Why is it that some of us aren't hungry for the word? Well, isn't it possible that we, we don't delight in the word? Remember that word? Delight. We don't delight in it because we don't remember how good it is. It's been so long. You see, it's a, a circular thing. How do you get to delight in the Word? Well, it doesn't just happen. You have to meditate upon it. You have to see it. You have to study it. How do you grow in your love for a spouse? Keep thinking on her or him. And of the bad stuff, the good stuff. How do you... Feel more affectionate, even more aroused in your relationship with your spouse. Isn't it true? More breeds more. You know what I'm talking about, right? The more you're touchy, the more you're talking, the more you're exercising your fellowship together, the more you want to. And it's like that with the word. More breeds more. And so meditate and delight And then more delight means more meditation. And more meditation means more delight. It might be, if you don't delight in God's word at all, that you're not a Christian. Might be. But it may just be that you're sick. And you've gotten used to no food. 
That happens. Happens physically. Where some people have to be told, you have to eat this. I don't care that you don't want to. You have to eat this. If you fasted for more than a couple of weeks, you'll know that there's that period where the the hunger stops. The hunger pangs disappear. Food is, you know, you're not really ready to sort of snatch a whopper out of a guy's hand in public. You're just kind of used to your stomach being still. But you also know two weeks in, three weeks in, sure, that's fine. Eventually it'll kill you. Christian, eventually this will kill you. You need food. You need to drink. Take up and drink. The third thing for us to think about, and we'll look at these more quickly, is that there's a happy result. Oh, many layers to this happy result. Look at verse 3. The person who does this delights in the law, meditates on it day and night. Well, he's not only blessed, that's what it said in verse 1. Remember all those different words used in that wonderful package of blessedness, happy, fruitful, fulfilled, confident. But he's like a tree, verse 3 says, planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. He's alive. Now, later on, we'll have to kind of just get slightly ahead of ourselves here. There's a contrast. Great tree, healthy tree, and what's the other one? Chaff. Chaff. Okay, so we'll talk about that more just a little bit, but let's keep that in mind and sort of contrast this beautiful, luscious, healthy, strong tree with the chaff. The tree is alive, not dry and dead. The tree is fruitful, not useless. With the tree, there's inner substance. With the chaff, there's emptiness, hollowness. Oh, how important this thing of substance is today. I know from my own experience, and I see it in our culture as well, we are superficial people. We are pretty content to be empty on the inside as long as we came out looking good to others. So often we're just husks. We're not trees with rich rings in the inside. This tree is stable. It's not blown around like the chaff. It's not blown by circumstances. It's not blown by people who are unreasonable. It's not blown by up and down economy. It's a tree. It's planted. It has what it's needed. Tree is refreshed. And he's refreshing. He's a shade. Produces fruit. It says at the end of verse 3, and all he does, he prospers. Now, that needs clarification because this word prosper and prosperity has been hijacked by the TV preachers. And their teaching is not only wrong, it's cruel. I want to be careful that I don't oversell Psalm 1 to you in such a way that you think it says what you may have heard 
from many a TV preacher. Prosperity here doesn't mean that there are no difficulties. No financial difficulties, no health difficulties, no problems with people. It's all cloud nine. No, the Psalms themselves go on to make perfectly clear that there are troubles even for the blessed, the blessed man, even for the Psalm 1 tree. Psalm 1 itself is a vivid picture of this planted and strong, fruitful tree. But that doesn't imply that there aren't winds blowing against this tree. That doesn't imply that there aren't any storms that roll in over this land. It doesn't even imply that there aren't seasons of bad fruit or weak fruit. It says it bears fruit in its season. I think it implies there are some ups and downs to this. It doesn't paint too lofty of a picture. It's an evergreen. The leaf doesn't wither. And yet the fruit is brought forth in its season. Remember also what Jesus said about how he helps us bear fruit. He said we bear fruit in part through his pruning. He cuts the ends off so that we grow and we bear fruit. And pruning hurts. I mean, not for trees, but for tree-like people, his disciples. It hurts when he does his pruning work. So Psalm 1 has nothing to do with financial or bodily prosperity. It's something far greater than that. It's something that supersedes that. It's something that gives hope in the midst of that. Now let's talk about the fourth thing here. The sad, destructive alternative. There's so many happy results for the planted tree of Psalm 1, but the passage goes on to talk about the wicked. Verse 4, they're not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Now, this word picture, if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's farming, obviously. It's There's this chaff mixed in with wheat, and so there are these, these husks that are empty, and then some husks that have in them, you know, wheat berry, wheat fruit. And you want the wheat, you're not interested in the husks. But you can't tell from looking at it which is which. And you certainly can't tell um, apart from holding one up at a time and comparing it with another. And so what farmers would do, and what they still do now with giant machines, is they sweep it all up, they toss it up in some ways. And the light stuff, the chaff, it doesn't have anything in it flies away. Even apart from machines in these olden days, of course, you know, you had a big sickle. You swing it in a windy day, the seed falls to the ground because it's heavier. Chaff flies away. It's useless. What's communicated by that? Well, remember, it's a contrast with a tree that chaff is dry. It's empty. There's no substance there. might look okay at first, but it, it flies away. It's useless. It's fickle. It's, it's determined by circumstances. It's blown about by simple winds. And in the end, it's simply gone. That's one way of describing judgment. It's simply gone. It goes away. But it's even clearer that this is judgment in verse 5. Right at the beginning, they will not stand in the judgment. 
So in the meantime, those who don't delight in God, don't delight in his word, they're light, they're fickle. Things are hard, are easily burned. They're tossed to and fro. But the saddest ending of all is they will not stand in the judgment. And so lastly, we see two kinds of people and two eternal destinies. In verse 5 and verse 6, the the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So what will it be? Which one are you? Are you a, a chaff? Are you a tree? Are you wondering at this point, maybe you were much earlier, Where's the gospel in Psalm 1? Is this really saying that there are those out there on that team, they're bad, and there are these other people who are good, they're the righteous. There, there are some God likes because they behave, they know their P's and Q's, and then there are these other ones over here that they don't care. And Are there really two kinds of people in this world or just one? Or one way of asking it is what my 12-year-old daughter just asked me recently. He said, who is righteous and are Christians righteous? And because she has a pastor for a dad, I had to give her a fourfold answer. (laughs) Welcome to the Kelly home, right? Pray for my kids. (laughs) Are Christians righteous? First answer, absolutely not. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who can commend their righteousness to God and say, I'm yours. Look at what I've done. Have favor on me because I'm better than others. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. None are righteous. Answer two. Through faith, Christians can be counted as righteous. Considered as righteous because of someone else's righteousness which is real righteousness, which is perfect righteousness. You guessed it, it's Jesus' righteousness. Christians can be made righteous or considered righteous or counted righteous. It's in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose sin is not counted against him. It's not that they don't sin. No, they haven't sinned. It's not that they've even sinned less. It's that through faith, God has mercy on some and doesn't count or consider their sin, but instead counts them as righteous because of Christ and his death. A third answer is Christians are, because of this now, becoming righteous. They are growing in the image of their Savior. They're following in his footsteps. And and by God's grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the help of the church, and, and with the guidance of the word, They're becoming more like Christ. They're becoming more righteous. There's a sense in which Christians are the righteous. That's what Psalm 1 is talking about. The last answer to my daughter's question, are Christians righteous, is one day they will be completely. One day he will finish what he started. One day they will see him and they will be like him. In the meantime... Here we are on Psalm 1, and it starts with the gospel. It starts with forgiveness. It starts, we could say, with Psalm 32. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. But then, once that happens, once we're his and forgiven, 
God's word now is precious communication between us and the one to whom we're restored. And then there's growth. We grow. We're trees. He's planted us. We haven't done it. He's planted us. We need his water. He's given us his water, the word. We're nourished in that. And we're happy because of it. Well, not perfectly so. We, we have moments of depression and doubt probably as, as well as anybody. But there's a, another layer, another dynamic that we can't talk about today of Christians having joy and being happy in a way that supersedes circumstances and hardships and even our own doubts in some ways. Are you a Psalm 1 tree? Or are you a Psalm 1 chaff where sin and self-righteousness leads you to dismiss God, ignore Him, to walk further in darkness through paths of sadness and meaninglessness all the way to a dark end in destruction. The first fork in the road, if you're not a Christian, is this. Will you listen to Him? Will you give up formulating your own diagnosis of the problem? Will you give up writing your own prescription for the fix? Will you come to him humbly and say, I've made a mess. What do you say? Will you come to him and look at what his word says, about what the problem is and what the solution is and how to see it applied in your own heart and life? That's the first fork in the road. And you actually can get further along in that clarity, the fork in the road, by reading his word. So go to it. If you're a Christian, I have one closing thought for you. In one sense, your happiness does not rise and fall on your, your relationship with this book. What I mean is God's love transcends performance. And it doesn't depend on you. And it doesn't depend on the consistency or the fervency of last week's or last year's devotions, Bible reading and prayer. We go to his word because he's merciful. We come boldly to his word, not when we've been doing good, but especially when we've been doing bad. Oh, how many of us have thought we can't pray right now and we can't go to his word happily because we haven't been doing that recently. And so we think we need to sort of flog ourselves before we can get to the place where we would start to again, with a clear conscience, enjoy prayer and enjoy his word. It doesn't depend on you, which you're flogging. We demean the blood of Christ when we do that. Come. In another sense, though, without minimizing anything I just said, isn't Psalm 1 also saying something like this? The blessed life, the happy, fulfilled, unshakable, substantive, stable, fruitful, refreshed, and refreshing life is one which feeds upon the water of the word and drinks from it and is nourished by it. There's a sense in which it's fair to say that some things rise and fall according to my use of love for and commitment to this word. I'm okay saying that. I think it needs to be said. 
And here is truly one of the biggest ways in which the word directs me and nourishes me and sustains me. It says over and over in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different stories, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's why you need the word, and that's where gospel and delighting yourself and meditating in his word go together. You've already come to the knowledge of his love and forgiveness in Christ, and you need reminders, you need reminders, you need reminders. More Bible should never lead me down a path of performance. I'm not really listening to the word if somehow more Bible is resulting in more guilt and more striving to earn his favor. More Bible should instead mean repeating, renewing of the promises and of his love and his goodness to me despite my failings yesterday, last month, and tomorrow. Think through how Jesus personifies Psalm 1 for you. He alone delighted in God's law. Hebrews says it was him that the Old Testament can say of of the one who came to delight in his law, came to do your will, O Lord. That's how you delight in the word, and that's where the war is waged. We need to keep drinking from that same water. And we shouldn't think big trees or small trees can go long without water. The happy life is the justified life. We come to knowing that justified life of the word, this book, and we come to knowing that justified life more by keep reading. Delight yourself in it. Meditate on it day and night.